Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, the last Wednesday in May. I think it's the 28th of May. So we're coming upon June, so as you're flipping your calendars, uh, please mark your calendars with a few important dates in June. We will have informed consent in the pediatric clinical and research setting next week for Grand Rounds. June 11th is Quiz Bowl, so big Grand Rounds on June 11th. Please put it in your calendars and show up and support um, your favorite team in the Quiz Bowl. I, I see Michelle, I don't think she's put the team together. The team's quite together yet, but uh, it will be, I'm sure, forthcoming. So June 11th and June 12th is graduation, right back to back after that resident graduation at uh, up at the Skiway. And June 14th, as I mentioned last week, we have our uh, Imagine Chad Summit to kick off our Imagine Chad Summer uh, process. Uh, today we have the, as we come upon graduation and Quizbo, we've uh, at the last of our series of graduating residents Grand Rounds presentations, a highlight of the spring. And today we have Michelle Tamer Shepherd, MD, PhD. Uh, I believe a native of Vermont, so Michelle has has stayed close to home and has stayed in Vermont as a Bachelor of Science in Molecular Genetics from the University of Vermont, uh, achieving um, the Richard T. Fisher Scholarship, Phi Eta Sigma Freshman Honor Society, and, and represented Vermont as a Horatio Alger National Scholar. That probably was back in high school looking at the dates, so I won't date you too much. Um, she went on to receive both the medical degree and PhD in cell and molecular biology at the University of Vermont College of Medicine in Burlington, has been with us since 2011 and is happily going to remain in Vermont and in our region in St. Johnsbury uh, in uh, general pediatric practice starting uh, soon after graduation, correct? So Michelle is going to uh, catch us up on a topic that's uh, a fairly high important topic at our institution that we've gained some uh, recognition for in uh, neonatal abstinence uh, syndrome treatment. Michelle? Not that dark, not that dark. All right, that's a bit much. Everybody can hear me okay? Um, so um, I'm very interested in the treatment of NAS um, or neonatal abstinence syndrome, especially as it relates to opiate withdrawal. And being from Vermont, I think we all know that Vermont's actually had a lot of press recently um, about the um, frequency of heroin use. Uh, so a, a very timely presentation. Um, so my objectives, um, basically I'm going to go over some of the community and financial impacts of NAS treatment, um, the role of education in preparing parents for dealing with infants with NAS, and uh, barriers for transitioning treatments um, to community settings, which is something I'm very interested in doing, uh, being that I'm going to be in a community hospital practice very soon that currently does not um, stabilize their own infants, but does have a large population of methadone-treated mothers. Excuse me, Michelle. It's yeah. a little difficult to hear you back here. Oh, okay. Better? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so I have no disclosures. Um, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> So, so for me, I think the most important thing, and I got a little carried away in my research, maybe it's from doing uh, you know, a PhD and thinking I need to find all the answers, but um, 
you know, I think it's important when we talk about NAS to go back and look at the burden of substance abuse in the United States as a whole, and then look at how it affects pregnant women, and then from there, how it affects the, uh, the infants. So then we'll just briefly talk about NAS um, as it relates to opiate withdrawal, the incidence and costs, um, some treatment options for both the mom and the infant, um, some barriers to local care, and some improvements for therapy. So here is the most recent uh, publication. This was this actually appeared in Rolling Stone. Um, and there was a huge backlash by the state of Vermont saying that it ruined the maple industry. Um, but the, the article that went along with this describes that per capita, Vermont actually has the highest uh, use of heroin. So the big problem, as I see it, um, is that substance abuse and dependence is a growing problem throughout the United States, especially in pregnancy. Um, the cost is unbelievable. So um, this is the 2004 Surgeon General's report, um, and it, quote unquote, illegal drug abuse um, was $181 billion. Um, and then $11 billion were spent on healthcare costs just related to this illicit drug use. So in 2012, um, the National Society of Drug Use and Health um, actually publishes an annual um, survey and results of how many people are using and abusing drugs. And so this is the most recent publication. About 24 million Americans over age 12 are current drug users within the past month. That's 9.2% of the population of the US. Um, Number one is still marijuana, that's about 19 million, um, and we'll have to see how that changes as things, as legalization changes. Cocaine, surprisingly, is still number two at 1.6 million, hallucinogens, and then heroin, almost 700,000. Interestingly, 150,000 new users in the course of 2012. And then we hear a lot about methamphetamine, but it's actually on the bottom of the list with 440,000 people in the US. Um, I think importantly for us, almost 10% of youth on this survey report it's easy to get heroin. Um, when you talk about abuse and dependence, we're talking about 22 million Americans that actually meet the DSM criteria for substance abuse or substance dependence. Of that, 15 million are alcohol abusers, 4.5 million are the illicit drug users, which includes uh, marijuana, and 2.8 million are codependent on alcohol and other drugs. The use of prescription pain meds has been going up as well, and 2.6% of the population uh, report use of prescription drugs for non-prescription use. That's 2.1 million people. Um, substance abuse and dependence actually affects 6% of youth um, from 12 to 17, so something we really should be thinking about. Here's actually just a map showing you in the United States, um, the, basically the, the populations of substance abuse. Um, unfortunately, you can see it's 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 small, but in the red is the darkest um, population, and Vermont is actually involved in um, a very high concentration of substance abuse. Another problem is the lack of available treatment. So, of those 22 million people using, 20 million Americans were thought to need treatment for alcohol and drug abuse, but didn't receive it. Um, only 1.1 million of those people actually thought they needed treatment. So that's a big difference between what the um, uh, you know, practitioners are saying and what the person is uh, perceiving. But 350,000 people tried to get treatment for drug and alcohol abuse and couldn't. And the number one reason for that, which was 48%, was a lack of insurance and an inability to pay. So in New Hampshire, just looking at what resources we have for substance abuse and treatment, there's only seven methadone treatment programs in the entire state. Um, 
for individual providers that uh, prescribe Subutex or buprenorphine, there's actually about 50. It depends on how you look at it. Uh, individual providers and clinics are kind of lumped together when you look on um, the resources available. Um, but the important thing is there was a, um, a law put into place in 2000 with the Drug Addri uh, Addiction Treatment Act, which limited their ability to prescribe to only 30 people. Um, so if you think of the millions of people that are looking for treatment and can't get it, um, and only 50 providers who can only provide to 30 apiece, there's still a huge need for providers. Um, and only eight treatment centers for people looking to undergo substance abuse, um, either um, sobriety or entering into treatment care, there's only eight places in the state that you can obtain that. And a lot of them don't accept insurance. So going on to pregnancy, so this is in, US, in the US, um, maternal drug use during pregnancy, higher in teens, um, I saw up to 16% in some of the data. Um, and in women over the age of 20, it's about 7% of pregnancies are affected by substance use. Um, in the United Kingdom, they actually did an interesting study where they did random urine drug screens of pregnant women and gave them a um, voucher if they um, came in for the study. And they found that 11% of those women were using opiates. Um, that's not necessarily who was reporting using them, but that was whose urine was positive. Um, and so with this, the rate, the rate of both maternal opiate use, which has been going up, and the resultant NES, which is what we're seeing, has been rising. So this is actually um, a table um, that is compiled from the National Survey of Drug Use and Health. So we talked a little bit about this, the NSDUH. Um, and what you can see is that um, there are some differences among different ethnic backgrounds, um, how much substance abuse is going on. Um, so if you look just at um, the use of um, illicit drugs, uh, the, the African-American population is about 7%. Um, and then if you look over at the alcohol use, surprisingly, about 12% which still um, was a little bit of a surprise to me. And then cigarette use, which I think we all see a little bit more than this, um, the reported data is about 20%. However, if you look at women that are using um, illicit drugs such as heroin or subutex, it's closer to 90% of those women are smokers. Um, so a couple of papers recently have looked at the subject of neonatal drug withdrawal and looked at the different um, substances that can pass through the placenta and cause some withdrawal symptoms in the infant. We won't talk about all of these today, but it's just important to note, you know, we think about alcohol, but other things also pass. Barbiturates, um, caffeine, um, the benzodiazepines pass, um, and then SSRIs, which is becoming a very large area of study, um, especially as it relates to NAS. So, <laughs> yeah, you like that picture. <laughs> so just moving on, so the definition of neonatal abstinence syndrome. So neonatal abstinence syndrome is actually a global term um, which embodies the withdrawal of symptoms of an infant um, related to prenatal exposure of substances used by the mother. And that could be any of those drugs that we talked about previously, um, cigarettes, um, you know, SSRIs, things like that. Um, specifically, neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome is a constellation of symptoms related to withdrawal from an opiate. Um, and generally, the symptoms fall into three broad categories of CNS um, irritability, autonomic dysregulation, and GI problems. So 
interestingly, depending on how you uh, define things, this is a huge area where you'll see a lot of variability in all my statistics. Um, but about 48 to 94% of infants who are exposed to opiates will have some signs of withdrawal. And about 40 to 60% of those will require medic medication treatment for that withdrawal. Um, in 2009, that was about 13,500 infants, or about one an hour. Um, and the total cost of care for these infants, uh, just for NIS, was $720 million in 2009. So just going over quickly the, the symptoms of NAS. Um, so as I mentioned, um, CNS, irritability, you know, they're awake more than they should be. They're tremulous, they have a high-pitched cry, increased muscle tone, increased reflexes, um, frequent yawning and sneezing. Um, and anywhere from 2 to 11% will suffer from seizures as part of the withdrawal. Um, GI symptoms, pretty much run-of-the-mill, um, diarrhea, vomiting. Failure to thrive um, is one that's being studied quite a bit with significant weight gain, uh, weight loss, um, and then poor feeding. Autonomic dysfunction, fevers, sweating, nasal stuffiness, um, and then uh, respiratory rates, um, elevations, and blood pressure changes. So the incidence of NIS, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but in 2009, it was 3.4 per thousand live births. Um, and that actually increased along with the maternal opioid use. So this is um, a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, which shows the change from 2000. There's about 1.2 uh, per thousand live births um, moms using opiates, and it's now up to about 4.6. Um, so quite an increase in the number of moms that are using opiates. And to go along with that, um, Looks interesting, but the same thing, uh, a rise in NAS. Um, and these are infants that needed treatment for NAS per thousand births. So um, again, about one one percent, uh, one per thousand, um, now up to over three per thousand live births. And this is courtesy of uh, Dr. Whalen. So this is actually what we see here in New Hampshire. Uh, so in New Hampshire, we have a much higher rate um, and more like eight per thousand uh, live births. Um, and then as you can see here, um, we're seeing quite a bit more than the national average. So looking at the cost of just a single hospitalization for NAS, um, the cost has been going up since 2000. Um, in 2009, it was $53,000 per infant. Um, and that's variable depending on where in the country you're treated. Some places actually treat their infants for up to six weeks. And as you can imagine, that would be a much longer um, cost than an infant that's only in for about 10 days. Um, so the total hospital charges in the year, $720 million, which is a little bit mind-boggling to me. And the fact that although the length of stay has not changed much, the cost has gone up from $190 million to $720 million in nine years. Um, and about 80% of that is actually paid by the state Medicaid program, so our tax dollars. So just looking at that as we talked about, so if you look at um, infants insurance, uh, infants with neonatal abstinence syndrome are much more likely to have Medicaid versus about half of the population of non-NAS deliveries, um, and only 13% have private insurance. 
Um, the income brackets were actually significantly different as well. So 36% of the mothers were in the lowest income bracket and only 14% in the higher income bracket. Although it does affect all um, stages of the game, it's a little bit more heavy in the um, lower socioeconomic status. So I mentioned briefly that the length of stay hasn't changed very much. So averaging across um, all hospital discharges <coughs> for these infants, the average length of stay was 16 days for an infant um, affected with NAS. However, if you think about the general length of stay for an infant um, who's just born with a regular delivery, it's somewhere around two days. Um, if they're admitted to the NICU, the average stay is 22 days, um, but some institutions were short of six weeks, as I mentioned. Um, and although it's only 0.3% of all births, the infant care is using a large proportion of NICU resources, including beds, staffing, um, and other, other charges. So there are quite a few different choices for opioid dependence. And we're gonna focus first on how the moms are treated during pregnancy, and I think this is very interesting. Um, because there really is a lot of research that's starting to come out on the, you know, the best therapies versus, um, you know, the benefits of not being a heroin user. However, with us increasing the use of methadone and buprenorphine, we're seeing more NAS. Um, so are there ways that we can uh, work to, uh, to decrease the length of stay and, and help get these infants um, home sooner? So for moms, the mainstay generally is methadone. That's uh, been studied since 1970s. Um, buprenorphine started um, to come on the scene in the 90s. And I'm not gonna talk much about Suboxone, but suffice it to say that um, keeping in mind when you talk to women, the difference between Subutex and Suboxone is that Suboxone contains naloxone, um, which can be a little bit more problematic when you're looking at the, the rate of seizures in infants. So there actually are treatment guidelines that are available. I'm not sure how widely used they are, but the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is a government agency, publishes treatment protocols, they call them TIPS, um, for therapy of um, not just women, but all, um, all comers that are addicted to opiates. So the goal of therapy during pregnancy is to stabilize the concentration of opiate um, agonists in the bloodstream. Basically, in order to prevent um, repeated um, withdrawal um, in utero, which can lead to problems with development. Um, in those infants that are not stabilized, you see an increased re risk of spontaneous abortion, increased rates of preterm birth, and the moms use more illicit drugs when they're not receiving um, methadone or buprenorphine. So the WHO published um, some guidelines in 2009, but um, methadone maintenance therapy has been the international standard um, for opiate-dependent women during pregnancy. Um, and initially, publications started coming out in the 70s about treatment for pregnant heroin users. So maternal effects of methadone, so the, the benefit is that they're using less illicit drugs. Um, they have better compliance with prenatal care. They come to appointments. And they have improved obstetrical outcomes, so there's less preterm birth, but also less need for C-section. Uh, for neonatal, um, again, you know, it doesn't change the, um, the incidence of NAS or the treatment for NAS. Um, and there is a ton of data that I was trying to sift through um, that 
there's really, um, it's unclear whether the there's a relationship between methadone dose and NES severity. Some studies find that there is a correlation, and many studies find that there isn't, but there's a lot of confounding factors. So more research needs to be done on that. So buprenorphine, or Subutex, is a partial mu agonist and a kappa antagonist. So different than um, methadone, that's a, uh, a full mu agonist. Um, so buprenorphine has a high affinity for the receptor, but a low activity. Um, so it's able to displace other um, opiates from the mu receptor. It also has a longer half-life um, and was FDA approved in 2002 for opiate abuse, but I should say that neither methadone or Subutex has been FDA approved for use in pregnancy. So we use it, um, but it's not approved. Um, another bonus of Subutex is the longer half-life allows you to dose it three times weekly in some cases instead of a daily dosing. So other uh, advantages of Subutex would be that um, individual doctors can actually prescribe this. Um, and that can help with women actually having a medical home and uh, achieving good prenatal care. Um, the outcomes for birth and the neonate are similar to methadone, um, and we talked about the dosing. So the mother trial is a really important trial that I want to spend a little bit of time talking about. So this is a <coughs> one of the only randomized controlled trials I could find that was looking at um, buprenorphine versus <coughs> methadone. Um, and they, they designed this study to be a double-blind, double-dummy, flexible dosing um, trial. There were six sites in the US, in, including Fletcher Allen in Vermont, one in Austria and one in Canada. What they did was give every woman a sublingual tablet and a liquid dosing every day. Um, and they were matched so that the, that the taste was the same. So the methadone and non-methadone liquid were supposed to taste the same and the sublingual uh, buprenorphine um, tablet and the placebo were supposed to taste the same. So they took the same every day and they were allowed to escalate on therapy as, um, as it was needed. Um, and then these women came in periodically um, for um, drug screenings and they would get vouchers um, basically for money um, for any ne negative um, urine screens. Help, this was really trying to improve their compliance with the medications. So the main result of the study was they found that in infants that, uh, of mothers that were treated with buprenorphine, um, they didn't need as much morphine. So the total dose was only a milligram versus um, 10 milligrams. Uh, their, their hospital stay was a week less. Um, and the duration of treatment for NAS was uh, six days shorter. It did not change the percentage of, of infants that needed treatment. So it was still that 40 to 60%. Um, or the peak NAS score, which was right around uh, nine, and um, didn't seem to change. And they used the modified Finnegan scoring as we do here. Um, interestingly, more women that were receiving the buprenorphine stopped the treatment. Um, so a third of the women that were receiving um, buprenorphine with a methadone dummy uh, stopped treatment. Um, so that's is a little bit interesting as to whether it's as good of a um, opioid agonist as methadone is. Um, several studies afterwards actually reanalyzed some of the data from the, the mother file. Um, so in 2012, this paper looked at um, basically the symptoms of NAS between the two different drugs and whether there was a difference between methadone withdrawal and buprenorphine withdrawal. 
And many of the symptoms were the same, but what they did find is that methadone had more of the tremoring, more of the um, hyperactive uh, reflexes, and they had more weight loss or failure to thrive than the buprenorphine infants. The other, uh, the infants in the buprenorphine arm actually had more sneezing and stuffiness and loose stools, so a little bit of the softer sign. A second paper actually looked at um, the effects of combining buprenorphine and methadone with other drugs because many of these women are at least smoking if not using other substances. Um, so they did find that the number of cigarettes smoked in the 24 hours prior to birth um, was associated with the need for NAS treatment and the amount of medication. Um, and many of us know that the infants withdrawing from nicotine are very jittery and have symptoms that are similar to opiate withdrawal. Um, maternal SSRI use, which I mentioned before, um, also led to higher morphine doses, um, and they have a little bit of a later symptom of withdrawal that um, can complicate the picture. Um, interestingly, they found that babies that were heavier um, with a higher birth weight uh, were more likely to need NAS treatment. And they haven't yet been able to come up with a reason for that, but it's just an interesting um, outcome. So in Norway, I found it very interesting. Um, in the Scandinavian countries, they do a great job of collecting data and keeping track of things. And, and they actually did a similar study where they looked at buprenorphine-exposed infants. Um, and what they found is those infants were heavier, longer, bigger head circumference, so all around um, bigger at birth. Um, again, they didn't have any difference in the infants needing treatment for NAS compared to methadone-treated infants. But if you look at their hospital stay, they, they, they did shave off uh, you know, quite a few days of treatment, 11 days, but they're treating their infants for up to 40 days, which as you can imagine is a huge burden on the family. So I did want to spend just a minute talking about other treatments. So this was an interesting paper about um, therapeutic interventions for NAS that are separate or in addition to um, treatment with opioids. So the most important thing is really to provide an environment that's calming. In an infant that has um, irritability and overreactivity, um, the important thing is to limit the number of times the infant is, um, is stimulated by clustering the care, swaddling them. Um, basically, I have never heard the applying pressure over the infant's head, so I'm not sure if that's been studied. That was your. Um, but breastfeeding, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in kangaroo care or skin-to-skin -skin care for these infants. Um, maternal syndrome therapy, I thought was a very interesting um, uh, thought. And then non-nutritive sucking, um, so pacifiers. Um, and then small frequent feedings, which um, helps a lot with um, growth as well as decreases the amount of um, GI disturbance. So, um, when we look at opiate withdrawal in the infants themselves, the timing of symptoms is different. Um, and that often can complicate the way that um, infants are managed after birth and why some institutions um, keep their infants for 10 days to, to monitor for symptoms. So in infants withdrawing from heroin, you usually start to see some symptoms because of its rapid metabolism within 24 hours after birth. Um, methadone, it can be as late as three days out. Um, buprenorphine can actually be even later, and there's actually some um, studies that suggest that that can be seen as late as seven to 10 days. Um, 
So if you think about that, those infants, if they did not meet the scoring um, guidelines for treatment at day of life four, discharged home, before they come back for their two-week visit, they may have developed significant symptoms of NAS with weight loss um, and poor feeding. Um, and so that really necessitates close follow-up of these guys if they go home early. So generally, the pet, there's, a, there's a lot of variability, but the way that most infants are treated is they are scored with some sort of scoring system, and we'll talk about that a little more. Um, the Finnegan scoring system is what we use here, and I have an example of that. Um, and so basically, we're watching them um, every few hours and looking for increasing severity of their withdrawal symptoms. So each institution has a specific protocol about when to initiate therapy, what to use for therapy, and um, the dosing. Um, but once withdrawal symptoms are stabilized, the infant is slowly weaned off that medication um, prior to discharge home. So here's a, uh, a modified Finnegan scoring sheet. It comes up a little hard to see from, from the back, but basically it scores for uh, the CNS disturbances, which you can see in the top, which includes um, tremors and myoclonic jerks. Um, if you have seizures, you get a big score, obviously. Um, and then sleeping, for how long they sleep after feed. Um, and then when you look more at the um, metabolic or GI disturbances, um, you'll see those on the bottom, sucking, poor feeding, throwing up, loose stools, weight loss. Um, and then the other autonomic instability would be fevers, tachypnea, modeling, um, et cetera. So it actually is quite a involved chart. Um, when someone's trained to do it, they can do it quickly, but it seems a little daunting when you're first looking at it. Um, so we talked a little bit more, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about other non-medical therapies. Um, and so the thought behind um, keeping the infant in a dark, quiet room is to decrease the environmental stimuli. And that's often challenging for us to kind of reinforce with the families that uh, having the TV on really loud um, and many, many visitors um, can be actually quite disruptive for the infant. Um, and in this case, swaddling has been shown to decrease the auto-stimulation. Um, and so helping them to kind of regulate themselves um, and then we talked about frequent feeds, but the importance there is on-demand feeding. So these are not infants you want to do a scheduled every three-hour feed with. They really should be fed on-demand. There's some complementary and alternative medicine therapies that are being investigated, which we don't use here, but we talked a little bit about the aromatherapy. They're also looking into lavender and vanillin therapies. Um, the pacifier companies, some of them make vanillin-scented pacifiers um, for that. Purpose. Um, infant massage is starting to come out in some um, areas as something to as an adjunct, and then there's some thought about acupuncture. Although they've found that infants actually don't have all the uh, acupuncture sites that an adult does, so that that's coming. More, more more to be investigated there. So when we do treat an infant with uh, medication, the goal is to decrease the severity of the withdrawal and to prevent weight loss. And certainly, we don't want um, an infant to be having repeated seizures. Um, but the main goal is to get them to sleep and eat. Um, we want them to grow. So um, from the, I, I actually took this quote from the AAP neonatal drug withdrawal um, recent publication. And it was to ensure that the infant achieves adequate sleep and nutrition to establish a consistent pattern of weight gain. Um, so we want these infants to grow. Um, so. We'll 
we'll talk a little bit about this, but most institutions send their infants that need therapy to the NICU. Um, and they're stabilized there. Um, and then often are transferred out to a more step-down or pediatric ward as they work on their weaning. Um, the main reason that people um, send infants to the NICU is the um, side effect of opioid treatment, which is respiratory depression or apnea. So these infants are, met, are monitored um, continuously on cardiorespiratory mo monitoring to look for any issues with morphine initiation. Many different options for treatments of infants with NAS. The standard of care is to use opiates. Um, if you look back at, in 1998, the AAP put out their first publication for treatments of infants with NAS. At that time, the tincture of opium was the most commonly used um, treatment, um, but also phenobarbital and clonidine were used quite a bit more than, than they are now. Um, the most recent guidelines from the AAP recommends using morphine or methadone. Um, but there are some studies, and we'll talk just briefly about it, about starting to use buprenorphine uh, for infants withdrawing from buprenorphine, which makes sense. Um, and then second-line therapy, phenobarbital is still used um, as a second-line therapy whenever um, the opiate therapy is not controlling the symptoms adequately, and also in the case of seizures. Um, clonidine actually had fallen out of favor, but in the new AAP guideline, they actually mentioned that that's coming back. Um, as uh, an adjunct. So just looking at all the choices we have, um, really the big ones, we, and we've talked a little bit about how they act, but the morphine and methadone are, are new agonists, um, whereas if we are to use um, suboxone, it's only a partial agonist. Um, the, the nice thing about using um, buprenorphine is um, you get a decrease in the duration of therapy. However, there just hasn't been enough trials to show what an, a, a good dosing to start with and how to actually administer it. Um, so I did find one study that we'll look at in a second about using sublingual liquid. Um, however, it's made up in 30% alcohol solution. So you have to wonder what uh, if you're getting some benefit from that. So um, using buprenorphine, as I mentioned, shorter um, hospital stay than morphine, um, and basically the length of treatment is shorter. So the, the good thing about using buprenorphine is it's actually stable at room temperature and oral syringes. Um, and so there is some postulation that this can actually be used at home, possibly, as people are starting to wonder if um, transitioning these infants out of the hospital into home care um, is appropriate. Um, some institutions do transition infants on um, methadone to home care with follow-up with their PCP because they can do a daily dosing. However, it often takes just as long to get them on a stable methadone dose as it does to wean them completely off morphine. Um, so there is still some, um, some need for standardization of those medications. So talking about that mother trial I talked a lot about. So in that trial, just as an example of how um, infants can be treated, they scored their infants every four hours for 10 days. Um, while they were in the hospital, it was every three to four hours. And then after um, discharge, all these infants received home visits. Um, and someone came and scored their baby at least twice a day until day of life 10 to try to capture any of those late withdrawing infants. They also used a modified Finnegan scale, which they called the mother scale. Um, and they added failure to thrive as actually a measure of NAS. Um, they used morphine therapy, um, and they had a specific guideline for two scores greater than nine or one score greater than 13. 
similar to the protocol that we use here. So this actually is a great um, little article I found on looking at the length of stay in infants that were treated with methadone versus morphine. And it turns out it was not different. And so we just talked about that. Um, there was a big push um, in the early 2000s to stabilize infants on methadone that were withdrawing from methadone. But the um, variability between the dose needed by the infant is much wider than that in oral morphine. And there just hasn't been enough studies to give a good idea where the starting point is. Um, so the unfortunate thing is with every institution doing something different, it makes it very difficult for us to actually look at um, as a um, uh, as a randomized control trial, what would be easiest for us to follow and what would be easiest to titrate in these infants. So with all I've talked about um, and the scariness of putting infants on opioids, um, there are quite a few barriers to the local care of these infants. And so um, some of the biggest barriers is that not all hospitals actually have a protocol in place for taking care of um, infants that are withdrawing. And um, not everybody is trained in the scoring, and not everybody uses the same scoring um, chart. Um, some hospitals, like the one that I plan to be joining, don't have the equipment to monitor these infants. They have a single pulse oximetry monitor that they bring into the rooms. So that is a barrier. They can't actually monitor the infants continuously on morphine. They just don't have the equipment. Um, and then there is just that trepidation to starting opiate therapy in these infants and, and keeping them in the local hospital. So I've decided, based on my, my looking at all this literature, the real issue is that there's no standard protocol, no standard scoring system, and no standard therapy to make implementation in small hospitals feasible. Um, and of all the NICUs, and I think I have another slide about this, only half of them even have a written NES protocol, and only 70% actually use a, uh, a scoring tool to guide their therapy. Here's that inconsistency. So let's look at all the NICUs that have residency and fellowships um, in the US. At least they sent the survey to them. Um, about 60 responded. Um, of them, 50% had a formal policy. 65% use Finnegan scoring if they scored. Um, so there's also other scoring systems that were used. 70% um, use the abstinence scoring to guide their therapy. 60% used opiates as first line. And only 83% collected even urine or meconium tox screens. So I was like, this was a little mind boggling to me that there could be that much variability between NICUs in the US. <laughs> yeah, he thought so too. <laughs> So improving therapy. So what can we do for these families? What can we do in this system of organized chaos where there is no standard? So we can look at transitioning these babies out of the NICU. So if we can get, and this is NIF, if we can get infants um, to the hospital ward um, and it decreases their length of stay, it decreases the amount of medication, why not transition those infants back to their community hospitals? or keep them there in the first place. Um, so there are side effects to being in the NICU. So the mom and baby in many cases are separated. Um, and depending on how you look at it, this can really be a disruption to the bonding of the infant. And, and it does use a lot of NICU resources. We've seen the cost of that care, which is probably in large part driven by how expensive it is to have an ICU level of care. 
And the admission is prolonged. I mean, we're talking 30 days in the, in the NICU. So um, this article that was actually recently published um, in 2010 in the European Journal of Pediatrics looked at treatment on a postnatal ward versus their NICU and how that changed um, need for NAS therapy. Um, and basically, it was the same exact hospital. Um, and it was the Royal, uh, Royal College Hospital, I think that was right. Um, and they looked at their infants between the different two, the two different years. So they did everything the same except in 2006, 2007, which is group B, those infants were kept in the mom's room. So they had a rooming in policy um, and then the dyad themselves moved together to the postnatal ward if, if therapy was needed. Um, and what they found is that in the groups that the infants were separated so that the um, infant went to the NICU, about 45% of those infants needed treatment with morphine. Um, whereas in the group that stayed with their mothers, only 11% needed treatment. Um, the duration of treatment was shorter. Um, so 13 days in infants that were separated versus um, seven days in infants that were with their mother. Um, their hospital stay was shorter. Um, so 20 days versus 15 days. Um, and more of those infants went home with their mother. That's actually a big, um, in the European nations, there's a lot of um, information about going home with the mother. And there's less of that published in the U.S. data. I think um, there's less placement outside the family in the U.S. in general compared to um, in the European nations. But that's just completely on what I looked at for these these different um, articles. So this is just some further demographics about the infants and shows that there was no difference in the maternal age. There was no difference in how much they smoked. There was um, no difference really in um, use of other drugs. About 45% uh, use other drugs. Um, there was no difference in uh, gestational age um, or birth weight or size. Um, they, they did not have any difference in their breastfeeding rate, although in the US some studies have shown a much uh, better breastfeeding rate in infants that are kept with their parents. Um, and as I mentioned, um, there was a trend towards going home with the mother. So protective factors uh, for these infants and how can we improve their care? So rooming in um, decreases the length of stay and need for therapy. More moms breastfeed in the US. Um, and a study has shown that breastfeeding, even for only the 72 hours of the initial scoring, um, decreases the development of symptoms of withdrawal. And in infants that do need treatment, they need less medication. Um, so this was the King's College I talked about. Um, this is just looking a little bit in a smaller, a smaller view of that data, which apparently got moved. So why does breastfeeding make a difference? And um, I am a little bit clouded in that I just came from a week-long conference on breastfeeding. Uh, so I couldn't not put this in. Um, but basically, both methadone and subutex are um, transferred in the maternal milk. Um, and so for methadone, about 3% of the dose is transmitted into, into breast milk. Um, and that gives the infant about a, three, uh, a little bit less than 3% plasma level to the mom. Um, it's not enough to prevent NAS, but it is enough that if you abruptly stop breastfeeding, you can precipitate some symptoms of withdrawal. Um, and of note, the American Association of Breastfeeding Medicine recommends that these methadone-treated mothers breastfeed their infants. And I just want to put out there, um, 
there's only one absolute contraindication to breastfeeding, um, as published by the American Association of Breastfeeding Medicine, and that is um, galactosemia in the baby. Um, otherwise, in, in most states, moms that are hep C positive can breastfeed, um, and that's a concern in many of these moms who are um, past or current IV drug users. And um, so breastfeeding, even in some states, they do allow it with cracked or bleeding nipples, although generally the um, recommendation is for them to pump and uh, not provide the blood-tainted uh, milk. But um, women with HIV in many countries can still breastfeed. It is not recommended in the US. Um, but I just wanted to put out there that um, we should be supporting these women to breastfeed in most cases, although it's a state-to-state dependent, I should say. In Massachusetts, um, moms that smoke marijuana are not allowed to breastfeed their infants. Um, we're a little more lax here. Um, Buprenorphine is also transmitted in milk, so the concentration is similar to the maternal plasma, um, and the infant receives about 2.5% of the maternal weight-adjusted dose um, via breast milk. Um, and there hasn't really been um, a study to, to suggest that they can precipitate withdrawal from uh, discontinuation of blood uh, breastfeeding in these infants, but um, more to come. So how can we support these moms to prepare for dealing with an infant? For those of us who have cared with an infant for NAS, it's very difficult for the families. Um, they can seem like they're in significant amounts of distress. There's a lot of feelings of anxiety around the parents. There's a lot of feelings of guilt. Um, and a lot of that can be mitigated by talking about that in advance and letting the mom know that, although it's difficult, this is an expected um, course. Um, and then another thing to do that I think um, would be very helpful is to practice how you would respond to a baby who is in distress and difficult to console. Um, so that's something that we can work with the parents in, in advance so it's not as stressful as the time. So some strengths for me putting out there for local treatment of infants. Um, so a lot of our families that come here travel from a long distance um, and they lose any of their friend and family support um, by being here for a long period of time. Um, we talked about how many methadone programs there are in New Hampshire, and that's not many. So if these women are coming from long distances, they will have to travel to get their methadone on a daily basis. Um, and decreased costs um, when you think about um, treating in a small hospital versus in a NICU. So I just wanted to shine a little light on one program that's doing this very well. Um, and this is the Shiway Pregnancy Outreach Program. This is in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's in the downtown east side. It has an enormous population of IV drug users, homeless women, um, sex workers, um, just in the depths of poverty. And these women had a very high rate of um, infants born with um, NAS, as well as um, infants that were um, had to be placed in foster care. So this um, hospital uh, at BC Women's Hospital put in a um, a unit called First Square. Um, they have five antepartum um, rooms and six postpartum beds. So they take women that are um, in, that are pregnant and are either on um, heroin or on methadone, and they stabilize them in a methadone program. They give them food. They help them find housing. They help them get insurance and state aid. 
um, and then they treat the infants as needed. And they can be there for months. They have a place to live. Uh, and it's really supportive of the mom and the infant together as a couple. So the way that these guys work, they also have um, drop-in center. So for these moms, after their babies are born for the first 18 months, they can drop in on a daily basis to get meals, um, vouchers. They can um, get counseling and support. They can get their methadone. Um, they can get um, treatment and help with co-occurring illnesses like HIV, Hep B. Um, they um, really get a lot of support around parenting um, and helping these infants um, stay out of the bad environments of, you know, the violence and the sex working. Um, and I didn't find a great link to it, but there's a wonderful video that's put out by um, by this program showing the changes that they've been able to implement in these women and the outcome of these infants, keeping the families together um, and you know helping the women get you know basically started on a new life. So I just want to put some props out to some um, quality improvement projects that are going here um, for NAS treatment um, and. Uh, Dr. Whalen, who was helping me with my, my project, I need to note that a lot of these goals and, and um, objectives came from her slides. Um, but the goal here was to standardize the scoring system we use, decrease the transfers to the NICU, decrease our length of stay, which is already pretty short, um, decrease our hospital costs, and do family-centered care. So the way that this is working is the infants are hopefully going to be transferred out of the ICN into the pediatric ward for their um, capture and morphine therapy um, to have the moms um, room in and care for their infants. So there was, they have completed a, a pilot study now of nine moms from the River Mill um, program, it's actually Suboxone program. Um, prenatal education is provided. Uh, they contract for not using any other drugs. And then if the infants needed to be um, captured, they were treated on the ward. Um, and I'm not going to give too much away, but it looked like um, the, the quality of care and the um, length of stay um, were shorter for these moms. Just a pilot, though. So just to wrap things up, new suggestions from the AAP in 2012. Each nursery caring for NAS infants needs a protocol. You should screen the moms. Screen the moms. Screen the babies. The ones that are at risk, not just the ones you know are using. Score the infants. Just pick a tool and stick with that tool and teach everybody to use the tool. Um, pick some way to treat your, your infants. All they say is, we recommend an opioid. Try methadone or morphine. Um, and then come up with a good protocol so that it's standardized how you dose, how you wean. Um, and they are pushing for using a weight-based dosing. Um, the observation period, now, interestingly, they are recommending for methadone or buprenorphine-exposed infants, you should score them for seven days. Um, but um, currently, you know, three to four days is um, what we're initiating here. Um, they continue to have ambiguities, so no tool has been found to be better than another tool. The threshold score is made up. We don't know um, what the score for treatment should be. There's many choices for opioid treatment, and we're not sure what's the best. Um, and this is a sad thing I wanted to put on the bottom, but had to say it. There is no data suggest that the medication therapy for NAS changes their long-term outcomes, which was very sad to me. I thought that um, infants that were treated and didn't go through this withdrawal would certainly do better. 
Um, but chances are that there has been some um, changes, and they're looking at some epigenetic modifications. But early use of opiates um, in these moms can actually change the developmental profile of these kids. Um, so some camps are saying maybe we shouldn't push for treatment of NAS. So I'm going to acknowledge these guys who are sitting here. So wonderful. Um, my support crew, um, everybody that's doing NAS work. <laughs> such as apnea, seizures, emesis, and aspiration. And the information you showed that grooming in 
more the implications that maybe transfer back to, or not even transfer from, smaller hospitals, care at home might be better. The numbers I saw in the, in the study, the studies that you presented were small. And in order to not only show that that care is good, but safe, you'd have to have studies with large enough numbers to show that those potentially fatal complications don't occur in those settings. Right. Any comment on that? Um, so I think a lot of it actually has to do, again, the, like I said, the barrier is being able to monitor the infants. So if you can't, if you can't monitor the, the children with at least SAT monitoring, um, to look for, I mean, prolonged periods of apnea before your stats drop, but at least you would have some warning that something was going on. But I agree, there there hasn't been any safety trials for you know small community hospitals and what their rate of seizures or um, adverse outcomes is. Um, I think the thing I'm pushing is that somebody needs to take the take the reins and do that kind of research. Um, but right now, because there's no standard, nobody's doing it. Um, so long-term goal for, for me to look into that. Well, before you, before Alan, before your last question, as well as everyone did make sure that you fill out your purple sheets and some feedback to Michelle and leave it down on the way out and I'll get back to the video. Not a question, but a, a partial explanation, Shalene, of your, your uh, query about why Vermont, why rural areas? But 10 years ago, the chief law enforcement officer in New Hampshire gave a talk here about why we were seeing so much HIV increase in New Hampshire. And he said it follows the drug trade. And he explained why the drug trade had grown so much in rural New Hampshire. Number one, uh, there were people moving in from already saturated markets for New Hampshire. It was Lawrence and Lowell, Massachusetts. So the, 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 the small time people were moving in because it was an unsaturated market that didn't have much appropriate enforcement. Number two, 89 and 91 are easy to move in and easy to move out of. And so you see this situation uh, with a naive population, minimal drug enforcement, and saturated markets in the bigger cities that are providing it. Plus Canada, stuff comes across from Canada easily in Vermont. I think that that's why I see it. I'm surprised that Maine hasn't, Maine will have this problem. But a lot of patients actually report starting, like moving on to heroin after starting and developing problems with prescription drug abuse. Yeah, well, the other thing was uh, when, you, when you have the habit and it costs you minimum of a couple hundred bucks a day, there are two ways you can make that money in the big city. You can prostitute yourself. And people say that up here, there's not that much action. It's not like Vancouver, big tourist city turnover. Or number two, you can steal stuff. There's no place to defend stuff. You can't go to a Maxwell Street in Chicago where half the stuff is stolen. So there's no way to make money except to uh, get your friend uh, or your girlfriend or your boyfriend addicted. And that perpetuates the issue on an ongoing basis. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it at that. Thank you, Michelle.